I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Dan O'Brien joins me again. The award-winning poet, playwright, and writer has just published a new collection of essays, a story that happens on playwriting, childhood, and other traumas. The book contains four essays written and presented over the last four years, four pretty traumatic years if you're an American like Dan is. As well, Dan writes about the trauma visited on his family as he and his wife, the actress and comedian Jessica St. Clair, were diagnosed and treated for cancer each, one right after the other. He writes candidly about how illness affected his ideas on writing, his work, and legacy. There are essays on his craft as a playwright, which is fascinating and sometimes humorous as well as helpful. I've had Dan on the program many times in the past, and we've talked about his plays and his poetry, as well as his long-standing friendship and collaboration with the Pulitzer Prize-winning war journalist Paul Watson. I have found a connection to Dan's work when he writes about uh, family estrangement. Not answers, perhaps, though his work, uh, including in this new book, has been edifying in that area, too. But in the questions he asks, sometimes wandering, always pointed and poignant. Dan O'Brien received the Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Drama for his play, The Body of an American, and the Penn America Award for Drama for his play, The House in Scarsdale, a memoir for the stage. He was also awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. His next collection of poetry are cancers, comes out this fall. Visit danobrien.org for more. This new collection is published by CB Editions. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Dan O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me back, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, the, the, uh, the book is called A Story That Happens on Playwriting, Childhood, and Other Traumas. I'll ask you about the subtitle in just a sec. But um, how do we describe um, what's in the book? I mean, there's an introductory essay, and then... Um, what are these? Are these four pieces? Are these four essays? Yeah, they started as, they were written uh, first as lectures to be given at the Sewanee Writers Conference, which is a, a writers conference in Tennessee that happens every summer for about two weeks. And I've been teaching there on and off for almost 20 years. Um, but these were essays that I, or lectures that I started giving in 2017, uh, right after I finished or soon after I finished treatment for uh, stage four colon cancer, mm-hmm. um, which I was treated for immediately following my wife's treatment for breast cancer. So we had about you know a year and a half uh, of, of uh, trauma turmoil. Um, you know, I'm happy to to say we're currently uh, both no evidence of disease right. and, and feeling healthy and, and uh, testing healthy. Uh, so these these lectures started, um, you know, in the wake of that experience and uh they are meant to be uh craft lectures which is um sort of the thing that happens often at writers conference uh-huh. conferences where faculty will you know novelists or poets or playwrights will be invited to give a you know 45 minute um talk on some aspect of, of the craft of, of writing um so that was the overall uh, assignment if you will but i i felt like i couldn't I couldn't really lecture. I've taught playwriting on and off for many, many years, um, but but I, you know, those were usually discussions, workshops, uh-huh. uh, give and take with writers. But this was an invitation to really stand up there and, you know, proclaim, formulate, and proclaim what I really believed about um, the craft of playwriting. And the only way I could really do that was to to tell a very personal story, to sort of um, try to articulate 
why I write the way I write. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and it was a well for me. It was a welcome invitation in the sense that post treatment, um, I was reevaluating my life in all kinds of ways. So I felt like I was already kind of thinking about who I was in general, but also who I was as a playwright. So this was a chance for me to to write very personally about. Um, how I write plays and why I write plays. So it ended up being, as, as you I'm sure felt when you read it, that it's really, the book is kind of a hybrid of memoir um, and talk about craft. Yeah, so, it, 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 they're about life itself, and, you, and your life is out of a playwright, yeah. as a dad, as a husband, mm-hmm. as, as an artist, as um, you know, a, 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 a victim of trauma, um, and they're all in there, and I guess one gets reflective at a time when you're given the diagnosis of of, a, of an illness, aren't you? I mean, I don't know how your life obviously does change, but your priorities change as well, don't they? Yeah, I think you can't help but you know it's it's been fascinating to me because I feel like you know the you know culture at large and the the world really has kind of been in a similar situation for the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the stakes are so high, when when life seems, um, if you'll forgive me, life and death, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you can't help but reflect. I think about about how you've been living, why you've been living, you know, what's important in your life, um, and uh, so I was certainly in that position uh, in starting in 2016, 2017. I would say when we were in treatment, both my wife and I, it was much more of a um, uh, you know, survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, um, and I wrote a lot during that period. Um, uh, but that was more in the form of poetry, a book of, a book of mine that's coming out, um, later this year called, called Our Cancers. Mm-hmm. And that took the form of more fragmented, um, minimalist poems, you know, uh, sort of trying to make sense of what was happening as it was happening. Whereas the, these lectures and these essays were sort of, more of this period of trying to rebuild, you know, trying to figure out to figure out what's happened, um, you know, and to try to rebuild and, and reconceive, uh, you know, an identity for myself and also, you know, an approach to, to my art. To, to the subtitle of the book, um, and as you mentioned, you know, these were largely for, for um, an audience that uh, was interested in the, in the craft of playwriting. Um, is playwriting like trauma? For me, it is <laughs> in the sense that I mean I laugh a little bit because there is an irony in the title, the group playwriting, also childhood, yeah, um, as as other traumas because of course one can have a childhood that's not traumatic. Sure. Uh, in in my case, you know, there, there was trauma, um, and my and it and it formed my approach to not just playwriting but writing in general and even art in general. You know, I, I think as a child I learned, or I know as a child. I learned uh, self-expression in an artistic sense as a survival mechanism. When, uh, when, when faced with trauma, uh, the, the sort of the, as a detail in the book, the more the most crystallized version of that trauma was, was witnessing my brother's, my older brother's suicide attempt when mm-hmm. he was uh, 17 and I was 12. Uh, but it was a childhood in general of neglect and emotional abuse. Um, so there are far more traumatic childhoods than mine out there, but it certainly was a challenging one. And, and I found 
writing, you know, around the age of 12, 13, 14 as, um, as a way to, uh, to feel connected to people, to, 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 I guess, if you'll forgive the term, to process my emotions, mm-hmm. uh, to feel heard, uh, to express grief, anger, hope, uh, joy. Um, you know, I should say that in the context of a family that was so emotionally repressed and neglectful, you know, there was really no mode or means of expression at all of any kind of, of emotion, you know. Um, so it wasn't just that I wanted to write about, you know, sorrow or grief or anger. It, it was, you know, I needed um, to express uh, emotion in my experience in general. And I felt like it, it saved me in a, in a lot of ways in terms of mental health, but it also brought me friendships and, and eventually relationships, uh, you know, that I, that I don't know if I could have really achieved mm. without writing. Yeah, yeah. And, and playwriting specifically, playwriting is such a social art form, you know. I write poetry, I wrote when I was younger short stories, and mm-hmm. so writing in general has been important to me, but it was the theater that, um, that sort of, that often happens for, for people in the theater, yeah, sort of welcomed me in as, as what, as a misfit or an outsider, and made me feel like I had a surrogate family. Uh, or, or, or simply facilitated friendships that I don't believe I would have been able to achieve otherwise. And I guess it, it, because you write it at one point in the in the book that um, writing um, you, you did it almost compulsively, and, and so that would suggest that you had a lot to, to work through, if you will. And then later on, um, the family of the theater, as you as you just described. Um, sort of replaced your own family when you um, found that you, I guess you needed it, right? Yeah, exactly. I think I think it really was born of necessity. I feel lucky in the sense that I had a certain amount of talent for it and that I had some key people along the way to say, you know, to, to, to tell me, oh, you're, you're good at this or, you know, you, you could be a writer one day. Uh-huh. And, um, you know... I, I, I don't know what I would have necessarily done without it because I certainly wasn't receiving any any uh, mental health uh, support as a teenager mm-hmm. or even as a young person in my 20s. You know, the compulsive nature of, of it, of, of writing and creation, I think that's common to so many um, artists. Of course, there are different types of artists, but, but I think it's fairly common. In some ways, it's adaptive, I think. You know, being uh, so driven and compulsive about writing um, helped me blow through um, rejection when I was younger, for example. Or, um, you, you know, it was always more important to me for myself to write um, so that when other people may have not wanted to produce my plays or publish my work or what have you, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't overly uh, dissuaded. <laughs> by the rejection um, but it's also tied up with you know part of my childhood uh, trauma I guess you could say was developing obsessive compulsive disorder around the same time that, that I witnessed my brother's suicide attempt so yeah. in some ways it, it, it could be viewed as a reaction to the trauma uh-huh. to uh-huh. that trauma um, and you know relatively mild to moderate OCD, I wasn't, you know, incapacitated to the degree that most people could tell. 
Um, but writing was a way to sort of displace and channel a lot of those same energies. And so, you know, at 12 or 13, I was compulsively hand-washing or even, you know, counting uh, the amount of time that flipped on or off the light switch, you uh-huh. know, uh, superstition and hypochondria. All of that eased, if not disappeared, once I was channeling those those energies into my writing. Um, so... You know, and, and I describe all that with, with ambivalence yeah. uh, because I don't, I don't think it's necessarily healthier um, to to displace those energies into to art, you know, rather than actually get treatment for it. Um, but, you know, that's where I think the compulsive nature um, of writing for me originated. Uh, and, it's, and still is there to a certain degree in terms of my my process, you know, I, I, um, my OCD is much, much, uh, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, managed, yeah. well managed in yeah. these days. Uh, but the writing, you know, I, I especially see that in my poetry, you know, poetry, probably of all the written forms, um, you know, can be so much about meter and rhyme, even if you don't write sort of formal poetry, uh, you know, poems, effective poems are usually written under pressure of some sort. You're trying to do as much as you can with as little as possible, the idea being that that, that type of writing will affect people very deeply. You know, you want to condense and uh, economize and, um, you know, so a lot of the same OCD impulses are worked out uh, in that type of, that type of writing. By the way, you you you, you mentioned hand washing a moment ago, and and um, that's in in a piece in the book that was written obviously before COVID. Um, mm-hmm. How have you contended with that over the last year or so? You know, the hypochondria of my years um, kind of subsided. You know, once I was. Uh, you know, out of the out of the home, away from my family. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I I still have probably more than many people a certain amount of hypochondria and awareness of, of you know washing your hands and things like that. If anything, like a lot of people like me, I think I've probably felt in the last year and a half a certain sense of uh, you know welcome to the club. You know, right? Uh, you know, this this is the type of you know the the CDC guidelines. You know, aside from mask wearing. CDC guidelines were guidelines I was already living my life by. You yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, very conscious of washing my hands after being in public, or, you know, not touching my face after interacting with people and shaking hands and that sort of thing. So, in some ways, I, I, I don't think I had, um, you know, an outsized reaction to what to what we've been through. Um, but you know, compared to like my wife is much. To, uh, my wife Jessica St. Clair, she's much. You know, more normal about those sorts of things, and we do have different base levels of uh-huh. comfort when it comes to, um, especially now when it comes to sort of um, opening up again, yeah, uh, yeah. socially. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't think it's your phrase, but um, writers, um, you mentioned this in the book that writers write like they're dying. Um, mm-hmm. When um, you do get the diagnosis. Um, 
I think I've talked to you about this. It was probably in an email because because my mom went through cancer about ten years ago now, and um, you know it wasn't me obviously, but but you know I was there, and um, it, it really does knock the breath out of you. The, the balance in your knees sort of shifts for, for for a moment or two when you find out. Um, as a writer, what what is that like to find out when when you get a diagnosis like that? I mean, do, do you because in, in another part of the book, you also talk about how your relationship to writing sort of changed, in, in, that um, there, there were moments where you didn't care if you wrote anymore. Yeah, I think, I think it, well, I know the diagnosis made me feel less compulsive about writing, uh, less like, oh, this is something, I, I forget who said it, but there was a poet who said that poems are spelled against spells cast against dying. Mm. You know, there's a sense that, that writers, some writers, create as a way to, you know, control the chaos of living, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether that's about dying or not. But, you know, there's if you create, if you put it into words, if you name things, you feel a certain um, safety and control over life. And you're right, once you receive a diagnosis like that, you're, you're hit with the uncontrollability of life. Um, and... Yeah, so in some ways it, it made me realize, oh no, this is a choice. You know, I don't I don't need to to write at all right now. Uh, in some ways, when you're in treatment or you're in surgery and recuperating, you can't write, um, or you can't write as much. Um, so you know, that was part of that feeling of enforced a period of enforced reflection. You know, where I couldn't help but think about writing um, as opposed to just doing it. Uh, which had been the approach previously. Uh, still, you know, writing was happening, which is where this collection of poems came from. Mm-hmm. And and they they came in a way that that I really valued because they were very um, they they felt very subconscious. You know, they were, and they, that's why I describe them as sort of fragments or shards. You know, they weren't these fully formed, beautiful, ornate poems. Um, they were sort of strange objects and very. Uh, they felt they felt very essential to me. They were coming from some part of me that um, that, that needed to tell another part of me something, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, they ended up being poems uh, in some ways about illness, about trauma. Uh, the, the, the collection is called "Our Cancers" because it's you know, about my wife and I, but it's also about um, you know the people we've known in our forty-some years on this planet who have had cancer, some of whom, many of whom have passed away, many of whom have not. Um, and so a lot of the poems in the book um, are about that. I think, you, I think you're confronted, you probably felt this way too, Joe, you're confronted with the taboo yeah. of cancer. Yeah. Uh, the taboo of illness is, is, is a thing, of course, too, but you know, cancer holds a special place um, in terms of everyone's fear about it, and uh, you can't um, you can't really hide from it when you're, when you're dealing with a diagnosis, either for a loved one, as it was when my wife was diagnosed. Um, you know, we had, it was fall of 2015 when she was diagnosed, and it was literally the last day, uh, the, the day of her final chemo infusion, uh, that I was diagnosed. So, she, you know, we, we changed places seamlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, I don't, I don't know which was harder. Uh, you know, to, 
to imagine finishing treatment and suddenly having to become the caregiver, uh, or in my case, to have been the caregiver and to think mm-hmm. at the end of it and to realize, no, no, you're going back into into the hell you've been through, uh, just from a different um, perspective, you know. Uh, again, I did have, you know, I fell back on, on the, the, you know, what saved me, as I said, as a 12 or 13 year old kid, I fell back on this belief, this conviction that, you know, writing about this could save me. And I don't mean that in terms of cure me. Right. You know, I, but of course, what the cancer experience teaches you, at least, uh, I think it teaches you, is that you really have no control over this. Mm. Uh, you know, the, there, there are, Jessica and I, knock on wood, have had a great deal of good luck in the context of some bad luck, some very bad luck, mm-hmm. in terms of our treatment being successful, you know, uh, just down to, to, you know, where a tumor was located exactly can make a huge difference in whether you live or die. And I, you know, I have no control over that. And have no control over that. Um, but I did feel like writing about it could, could clearly or could in some way save me emotionally. Um, and, and maybe be helpful to somebody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, who might read about it, uh, read, read this book, these essays, read these poems. You know, I, I think it's, um, it can sound grandiose and I don't mean it that way, but I, I think it's, it's I think it is a good thing to, to to try to break that taboo and to try to show um, to, to tell one story of of, um, of getting through an experience like this, even yeah. if it's ongoing. You right. know, when you when you're when you're no evidence of disease or in remission, or you know, the story doesn't necessarily feel over. No, but of course, what it does remind you is that not like every single human being is in that predicament. You know. They may not know, uh, they may not be thinking in terms of, oh, I hope a cancer doesn't come back, but they could be hit by a bus tomorrow, we sure. could develop some other, other yep. disease or something. So, or in the case of COVID, you could catch, you know, COVID. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's the belief that, that this is a universal story, even if it's, um, even if one's personal history doesn't have to do with cancer. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and at the same time, you know, one's personal experience may not be the same as another person, just because of you know, geography, even circumstance. Um, yeah. The the um, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, you you talked about superstition, and and there's something fascinating throughout the book that that I want to ask you about, and and um, you. Uh, Say that in the midst of trauma, everything means something. That 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 you're looking for signs. You're you're, you're looking for meaning in everything. Um, wh- where does that come from? Does that come from, say, whatever religious experience you might have had? Uh, sorry, experience with religion you might have had as as a kid or even as an adult. Um, because you you mentioned um, as well that um, you'd seen psychics and fortune tellers as well, and and. I guess you were into that at one point. Um, where does that come? I mean, it, it, it just seems like it comes from a place of, of you're seeking answers for something, and you're just looking everywhere at this point. Is that is that accurate in a way? 
I think yeah, I think so. I think it's I think it's um, on some level probably fairly universal in the sense that you know I, I, I think human beings want a narrative mm. to make sense of chaos. I mean that's just that's just a way that we can feel safer. I think, um, and so you know, searching for signs or symbols. Now that in the specifics, of course, that might be more of a, um, a poetic sensibility. Somebody who's, who's uh, thinks in terms of metaphor or prone to superstitious thinking, which which um, I think has a lot to do with obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, um, but I, I think it's pretty true across the board that when suddenly you're hit with something chaotic and life-threatening and uh, destructive and difficult, you're, you're going to try to figure out, you know, why it happened, how to get through it. Um, some people are obviously going to fall back on a system of belief that maybe has helped them in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's not really the case with me. I mean, I was raised, if anything, kind of vestigial... Uh, Irish Catholic, because my father was was raised that way. He, you know, he he had this sort of um, stereotypical complaints about uh, you know, abusive nuns in sure. his childhood. Yeah. So we weren't we weren't raised anything really. We would occasionally go to the Episcopal Church, you know, for for Christmas or Easter uh, service. Uh, but the, I think the Irish Catholic culture uh, is there in the background um, for me, and that might be where some of it comes from. You know, this, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but the interest in, in psychics, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. you know, had had to do. You know, there's a tiny part of me that, of course, um, would like to believe there's some reality to to supernatural thought or belief, um, but that that's a very small part of me. I, you know, I I know at the time I was um, very interested in the way in which what a psychic does is similar to what a writer does or, or a performer slash writer does, you know, in terms of um, reflecting the audience back to themselves, you know, and there's, whether it's conscious or not in terms of what a psychic can do, and I think many of them believe what they're doing is real. I think many of them do not. Yeah. But I think it's still a question of, you know, listening to, to what what the person wants or needs to hear, um, and then giving it back to them uh, as a narrative, again, as a story that's compelling, you know, as a story yeah. that's engaging. And that, that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I, you know, I really haven't seen that many psychics in my life, a handful really, probably. Um, and when it's been interesting to me, it's felt like I've been part of a, a fascinating um uh, Mental magic trick, and uh, and that's that's really interesting to me. I, I, it's also you know throughout my career I've written about beliefs. You know why mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. people that believe perhaps strange things, uh, and that on some level I think goes back to being raised in the family. You know with the parents who, who seem to believe strange things, not in terms of their religious beliefs, but they they um, you know suffered from untreated mental illness, they seem to wrestle with delusions and paranoia um, that we as children had to then somehow try to make sense of. So I think that's why I've always been drawn towards people who believe um, perhaps uh, some 
strange things. So, you know, that, that was in some ways at, at the heart of my work with Paul Watson, who's, uh-huh. who's a Pulitzer Prize winning Canadian war reporter who has written uh, two collections of poetry about and, and, and the play and an opera. Um, you know, I, my work with him has been fascinating um, and, and rewarding to me in all kinds of ways. But, you know, what initially drew me to him was his belief that he was and is being haunted by the, the, the spirit of, of a soldier, of a dead soldier that he photographed um, in Mogadishu mm-hmm. in 1994. You know, so I've always been been drawn towards, uh, you know, people that are haunted, uh, you know, people that, that, you know, why we believe what we believe about ourselves or about the world. Um and I do think it just goes back to, to my childhood, you know, trying to understand, uh, you know, if you, if you, as a kid, if your parents are not quite in reality with you, uh-huh. <laughs> you have to wrestle to figure out what reality is, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sure throughout my adult life, I do that with myself. You know, I have to find, to remind myself of what's real. Uh, but that's why I, I think I've been drawn towards uh, towards people that that believe strange things. Uh, that said, I do you know I do have you know that five percent of me that, that that doesn't know and would probably be classified as an agnostic in terms yeah, of religious yeah. or spiritualist uh, terms, and uh, and you know I cop to that for sure. Yeah, I, I was raised as a Catholic, and being Filipino, and. Um, mm-hmm. And I, um, I'm not a good Catholic in terms of you know. I, well, we haven't been able to go to mass for the last year and a half, and and even if we did, I probably wouldn't be a, a regular at, a, a attendant. Um, so I, I work at it every day, you know, trying to be a, a, a good person, whether that's being a good mm-hmm. Christian or not. But you know, I, I, I curse and swear like everybody else. I ask critical questions. I wonder if there is a God whenever I see something in the news that that you know that's that's unpleasant. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. I guess I, I do wonder if something is out there because I, I would like an explanation sometimes as to why, because the world can't be, um, just this random stuff that happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and if it is, you know, we're still left with, with our human brains to, to find a way through that, right? I mean, it's still... It's pretty cool, it's though, if you think about it, that, <laughs> yeah. that, there, there is, that <laughs> this random stuff comes together as it does, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, something that you do talk about in the book that that that, um, that I'm wondering about is, is um, you, you mentioned being haunted um, and, and attracted to people who are haunted, and something that, that, that has haunted you through all of the, the, these last few years is, is guilt. And um, you you ask yourself if the estrangement from your family, uh, because it did afford you some freedom. Um, it, it, it you know you were freed of, of a lot of bad stuff in your life. That if th- th- this illness um, was perhaps payback for that, um, I guess it, what what is that filial guilt they call that being away from one's family? I mean. Um, that's something you, th- yeah, you talk about in the book. It, 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 how did you wrestle with that? I mean, it, uh, one would hope, because it, it was a pretty messed up childhood, that um, that's not something you feel today. 
It's not. I mean, I you know, it's um, with the exception of uh, I have six siblings, but with mm-hmm. the exception of uh, the youngest in my family, I, I, uh, my younger brother, I, I don't have any contact with anybody in my family. And I wasn't, you know, by my choice. Um, no one ever used the word, but it, essentially I felt like I was disowned mm-hmm. uh, 15 years ago this May. Um, and I and I feel a lot less um, confusion or guilt or anger now than I, than I did 15 years ago, for sure. Um, the fact that it was sort of done to me probably helped a little bit in terms of my guilt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know uh, if I would have had the strength of character to, to um, choose to separate myself from from my birth family um, when I did. Um, and overall, I'm very glad to be removed from them. Um but at the same time, I've, I've always been, you know, very aware of what I think is almost a, a primal impulse, which is that to 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 leave one's family, to leave one's blood, is leaves you vulnerable, uh, and that can all that can often take the form of feelings of guilt. You know, that you shouldn't do that. That it's somehow bad or wrong. That you are bad or wrong, you are the black sheep, you know, you are rejected or unloved, um, therefore, uh, you must have, you must deserve it in some sense. And that does dovetail somewhat with what happens, I think, for a lot of people, if not most people, when they receive a cancer diagnosis or, or probably other diagnoses, where you say to yourself, well, what did I do to mm-hmm. deserve this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whether it's the Book of Job, right? You know, Job saying, "What, what did I, what, what did I do?" And of course, the message of the Book of Job is, "You didn't do anything. You just, you, you shouldn't even ask that question. You don't have the, the capacity to understand, you know, why misfortune is visited upon certain people and not others at different times." For you know, uh, but it's a very human impulse to say, "Is it my fault?" Uh, it's very similar, again, I think, to when kids are abused, whether it's emotionally, physically, sexually. There's going to there's gonna be a very um, subconscious, unconscious feeling of, oh, well, I must have done something to deserve I must be complicit in this abuse in some fashion. And I think that's, that's, um, that, that's exactly the feeling that I had when I was diagnosed. Uh, and, of course, you, you reflect and you say, well, what... what what could have caused this? And, you know, by now I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with the not knowing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless, again, unless you, you know, spent time in Chernobyl or smoked tons of cigarettes, it, it's very hard to say for sure exactly why somebody develops cancer. You know, it's a combination of genetics and environment and, and to some degree just bad luck. You know, it can, mm-hmm. it can be sometimes just the wrong mutation at the wrong time. You know, my wife and I were living near the World Trade Center on 9-11, and mm. the apartment was, was covered in, in um, you know, dust from, from the buildings. And uh, so, you know, that couldn't have helped. Um, it, it's about the right timing. A lot of cancers from 9-11 seem to um, have cropped up, tend to, 15 years in that window mm-hmm. after the um, after the the insult I think is the term one of my doctors used 
after the environmental insults. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I wonder about that. But, of course, I know that that's probably just one factor uh, of many. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of, but, yeah, I did have to process that, and I still am, that, that sense of guilt, you know, could I, could I have done something, could it be related? You know, it is magical thinking, it is superstitious, you know, uh, magical thinking is, of course, a term that's used often with OCD. Yeah. Um, right, the idea, you know, when I was a kid, I, I knew, even as a 12-year-old, I knew rationally that flicking this light switch seven times wasn't going to bring me good luck. But I felt I had I had this compulsion that if I didn't do that, I would be vulnerable to something bad happening. Uh, and, um, you know, so it's a very sort of primal feeling of, you know, something bad has happened, something bad could happen. What can I do to protect myself? Um, luckily, again, I had the writing to go back to that here was a way I could try to make sense or at least make a narrative, make a story, make an essay, make a poem out of what's happening. And that gave me, you know, some degree of um, comfort and a sense of control um, that I'm sure, at least emotionally speaking, uh, helped, helped me through treatments, helping me, obviously, still. So, so the pieces in a story that happens uh, were written to be delivered uh, in front of an audience. Do, do you write differently for the ear, say, as opposed to the eye? I mean, I, I would assume that, that um, you write poetry. I guess a, a lot of poetry is also read, but um, mm-hmm. it's largely the, the, uh, the process of, of putting words on paper for, for the, the, the eye. Um, do, do you find you know, that... I, I try- I try not to in this, I try not to, I mean, I try to write, um, you know, for, for the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm writing essays, if I'm writing prose or poetry, you know, the, the, um, speaking it aloud is really an important part of my process. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, you know, I was, I was more aware while writing the first incarnation of these lectures. I was more aware than usual uh, that a room full of, you know, 300 writers predominantly were going to be uh, listening to this. And on one hand, that, you know, to speak as a playwright, that, that raised the stakes for me, which was exciting. You know, it was yeah. it's different than writing something that maybe will be in a literary journal and might be read, but you won't see the reaction of who reads it. Um, it's very different than standing up there at the lectern looking out. And again, it wouldn't just be your average um, cross-section society. These were writers at all stages of their careers, um, many of whom I've known for a long time, many of whom would be I'd be meeting for the first time. So it's important that, um, you know, that I speak in a way that, that, um, that reached them. Uh, and I felt like it was, a, it was a, you know, it was a gift to be able to, Imagine while I'm writing these these lectures, I'm going to be standing in front of you, the reader, the listener, in a few weeks, a few months, and um, so in some ways the lectures could feel more like a dramatic monologue mm. rather than an essay. You hear the word essay, and 
know, one reason why books of essays don't necessarily sell is because people think of high school. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Like when you had to write an essay about about some book you didn't really want to read, um, and you know, I, th- I think I think these essays are very literary, but you know, I, I was very conscious of, of speaking them to 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 people right in front of me, from me to you, yeah. you know. Um, so I hope, and in the years since writing the lectures, I've, I've revised it and revised it as a book, so it's, it's a bit more like um, uh, like something meant to be read rather yeah. than to be performed. Yeah. Um, but I, I found it helpful to think of it almost as a uh, performance when I was writing it initially. Yeah, and, and, and that comes through as, I, as I'm reading them. Um, one of them, though, was not for, for Sawani. It was for... Um, I'm looking it up here in my notes here. The, the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. What were the circumstances that you found yourself there? Yeah, it was actually, it was, um, it, 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 I delivered that essay, the third essay in the book. First I delivered it at Sewanee, so it was still for Sewanee first. And oh, I see. Okay. The, um, the Air Force Academy invited me. They sort of, I guess, awarded me this distinction um, every year of a, of a visiting writer who would come in and, Music classes for a couple of days and deliver this this lecture for something like three thousand cadets and, and uh, um, various um, officers and so in some ways a very uh, intimidating audience, uh, especially as the essay the lecture I was going to read was specifically about conflict, mm-hmm. the idea of conflict um, in a dramaturgical sense in plays, conflict in, in just in terms of relationships in one's life. And then also specifically conflict in terms of writing about war. Um, and uh, I'd received the invitation before I'd written this lecture. So in some ways I did write it thinking ahead towards coming to the Air Force Academy. Um, and the invitation came from Donald Anderson, who has taught at the U.S. Air Force Academy for a long time. He's an exceptional writer um, himself. He edits a journal called War Literature and the Arts, um, and that's how he became aware of my work uh, with Paul Watson. Um, you know, uh, primarily uh, poems um, that yeah. he's familiar with that, mm-hmm. that I wrote, either adapting, deriving from Paul's work. Um, you know, often what I did with, with Paul was record all of our conversations. He was aware of this, of course, and I would sort of call his words, also his experiences for for what felt to me to be um, you know, the sort of the uh, um, consolidated um, poetic experiences in his life. Um, so I, I you know, for many years felt like I was in, I was his interpreter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how that's how they were aware of, of my work. And it was really, you know, it was a rare experience to have, and I was aware of that at the time, to be able to, first of all, just to be able to, to be in that environment to talk about what I'm talking about, as someone who's never been in combat, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody who who wrote about a writer who wrote about war. So, I mean, I'm, I'm twice removed from war. Um, but my my experience with, with Paul Watson has been so um, peculiar and... and um, and uh, close and intense um, that I, I do feel like 
uh, his experience uh, and mine overlaps to a great degree. And um, so no, it was a, it was a, it was a great experience. It was interesting yeah. to see, you know, the response. Uh, you know, again, I've also never, I've never been. I think I visited West Point once as a kid. You know, like mm-hmm. I've never been to a, to, to um, <clears throat> a military academy. Uh, so it's interesting to see the response. You know, people people were very polite. I think probably because of the training. You know, it was different than I've, I've taught at lots of universities and colleges, and, and uh, you know, I, I did feel like everyone was being very correct. You know, in terms of being polite and responsive. But my essay was critical of the Trump administration mm-hmm. and um, had some things to say about about what I think is the moral uh, paradox of military service. And, um, you know, some, some students and I'm sure some instructors um, felt that was provocative, yeah. you know. Um, the one thing I admire so much about Don Anderson is, you know, he, he wanted that. You know, he wanted me to come and be myself and... And, uh, you know, he's, he, he wants to challenge his students. He wants these cadets who are going to go um, serve in some capacity, some actively uh, engaged in, in combat, to, you know, to think artistically and creatively about war, you know, about, about what, they're, um, what they're, you know, what they're going to be giving their life and time to. The other no, it was a very yeah. rewarding experience. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. The, um, the the other thing that I was thinking about is, I mean, it, it was about a crowd of about three thousand. You said, and they were all in uniform. That that must have been an odd experience itself, standing in front of a a group of people like that. Yeah, it was. I mean, I you know, again, I I'm so familiar. You know, when I'm not, you know, a playwright and poet doesn't get paid much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm used. To, I, I taught a lot. Uh, colleges and, and, and universities, and, and uh, so on one hand, it felt like, oh, I'm just at another college, you know, these are kids between 18 and 22 or yeah. whatever, yeah. Uh, but then on the other hand, of course, as you say, you're aware of this, this overlay of the culture that's very different um, from your average, it, it was, you know, liberal arts um, approach um, to writing. Um, but I, again, I just felt very lucky that what I was writing about, what I'd been writing about, felt you know apropos to to their lives. You know, not that I felt like I had wisdom or insight, but I felt like it was at least something they could react to. You know, it, it yeah. wouldn't be some sort of general talk about writing. Or, you know, it, it was writing about. Um, well, that essay talks to a certain degree about Tim O'Brien, no relation, <laughs> but a wonderful um, writer who's meant a lot to me, who's taught at the Suwannee Writers Conference with me, so I know him a little bit personally, um, you know, to sort of, so I brought him into that lecture and into that essay and his work to, you know, um, to sort of raise this subject of how to, how to write and how to talk about warfare uh, in an honest way, you know, to talk about the trauma of warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm no expert, but so many people who serve um, leave the service or even while they're in service, and they have no emotional, mental uh, health support whatsoever. Right. And, you know, my lecture, of course, probably was bringing that up, but it's also about how art 
uh, itself can be therapeutic, you know, communicating, uh, you know, truthfully one's emotional experience of war uh, is absolutely necessary for for mental survival, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's that's Donald Anderson's approach, his, his approach with the war literature and the arts, um, this, this, uh, this journal, and, uh, you know, that this, this is part of the education he wants to give these cadets, um, you know, before they leave, before they may be exposed to some really difficult, difficult things. To the importance of the arts, the, the final piece in, in this collection, um, near the end of it, you, you talk about um, the future of the theater, especially after COVID. Um, in your country, you're, you're um, seeing sort of some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Um, Broadway in, in, in New York City is coming back apparently in September. Um, it, it's been tough for people in, in, your, in, in your field, um, uh, of, of the theater and, and, and the art. Um, where do you think audiences are in terms of uh, coming back to the theater uh, sometime soon, say? You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, as everybody is, I think, in all kinds of ways, and certainly theater, theater folk, show folk are thinking about this a lot. Uh, and then, you know, the honest answer is I, I don't, I don't know. It does feel like, of course, this is all uncharted territory. I think, you know, if, if uh, vaccinations continue, you know, and enough people are getting vaccinated, if infection rates are low enough, I, I think, I think people could become comfortable fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and this is again thinking in terms of coming back from cancer treatment. I think the first weeks and months are the the hardest because you, you know you're, you're stepping out of the cave, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're um, and you didn't necessarily think you'd ever get out of that cave, and everything seems so strange again, and perhaps scary. And uh, but then then there's a there's a period where things start to click again, and you remember, you know, the years and years previous that were quote unquote normal. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, so much just depends upon how well COVID is going to be controlled in the years ahead. You know, it's hard. It is hard for me to imagine that September if theaters will be filled 100% capacity. On one hand, I'm skeptical with that. You know, is that really safe? How are you going to really ensure um, that, that uh, you know, that the audience is, is protected? Um, on the other hand, wondering, like you said, will audiences feel uh, enough, audiences feel um, safe and uncomfortable enough to, to fill those theaters to 100% capacity. Um, so, you know, I do wonder when it comes to Broadway, if, you know, how much of this is very hopeful, optimistic projection for, for economic reasons. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, because the nonprofit theaters in this country, many of whom have enormous budgets, so nonprofit doesn't necessarily mean a small theater, uh, are being um, somewhat, if not very much, uh, more cautious in terms of, of coming back, um, you know, um, and, and instead are planning, you know, uh, smaller seasons, um, planning for smaller houses, uh, budgeting for smaller houses, trying to... Smaller uh, to shows. Some smaller shows, trying to, to plan for streaming, 
for streaming players to continue in some capacity. So more of a hybrid um, model for the next you know year or so. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm just in that that ambivalent place where, well, where I was four years ago finishing yeah. cancer treatment. Where I'm, on one hand, uh, you know, so relieved and excited um, to come back. On the other hand, you know, wanting to be careful, wanting to remember the lessons of illness. Uh, you know, wanting to remember in this case the lessons of. Um, coronavirus or, or the lessons of quarantine and shutdown, mm-hmm. you know, um, during this period, like in many fields, people have been wrestling with, reckoning with injustices in the industry. Um, and uh, so, you know, I feel, I think what a lot of people feel, which is that we don't, we, we want to actually come back and come back stronger, come back in a different way. Um, you know, come back with a, a theater that's more diverse and equitable. Um, in my case, I want to see, you know, plays and musicals that are more challenging and mm. more provocative. And I'm skeptical because, you know, I think theaters are going to feel even more pressure to be quite conservative. Um, or com- commercial, yeah. Yeah, yeah commercial and, and conservative in lots of ways. Um so it'll be interesting. I tried to capture, you know, in the, in the final essay in that book, some of that that ambivalence because, on one hand, it is potentially a time of great opportunity and change and growth, you know, uh, which again is true of illness and true of many traumas. You know, yeah. if they don't kill you, they can <laughs> they can change you and maybe in some ways change you um, for the better. Uh, and um, you know, I, I, have, I do have that hope overall for the theater. There's um, one last thing I want to ask you, Dan. Um, the um, the sort of plays that you've written over the years, um, have you been constrained by the idea of um, the the show business part of it? I mean, the the the, the, the second part of that phrase, show business, the the that uh, it won't get staged because it's got too many sets or too many characters. I mean, do, do, you, um, do you write with that in mind, say? You know, I, I don't write so much with that in mind, which is, um, you know, it's been sort of just a self-awareness and acceptance thing, you know, that I don't, it's very difficult for me I'm a very instinctive writer in terms of the stories I feel like I can tell and need to tell. So it's hard for me to to choose um, what I think is going to be a commercial uh, play. Uh, you know, that said, there are all kinds of economic factors that, that sort of, uh, I'm sure, unconsciously have formed my conception of what a play is. And, um, you know, but, but my ambition ever since I was a kid was to write... Um, you know, what would be considered literary plays or mm-hmm. challenging or difficult plays. You know, those are the playwrights and plays that I admired the most. Um, so that's why it's, it's, you know, it's never been, I mean, sure, if I wrote a play and someone said, hey, let's, let's you know, open it on Broadway and let's imagine it runs for years, that sounds great, but that's never been my ambition. 
uh, and the writers that I again that I had admired when I was starting out didn't write that didn't write that way either. So in some ways, that that's a difficult um, uh, ambition to have in, in terms of paying one's bills, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are ways. Again, you know, almost every playwright I know teaches or writes for TV or film mm. or has a day job that's completely unrelated um, to writing plays. Uh, all of which I've, you know, I've uh, done in some capacity over the years. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's um, an interesting question. Just what I mean, in some ways, I think it's a it's a paradox or an oxymoron to talk about the commercial theater. There clearly is a commercial theater, but maybe I don't consider a lot of that to actually be theater. Um, it's, it's spectacle. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a cliche, but it's um, Often amusement park theater or museum theater, um, and that's not. I'm not really so interested in that. I think there are fantastic musicals, but I also don't think in terms of of, um, of musicals myself. Right. Um, or I don't create in, in you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think creatively in those terms. Yeah. Um, I could um, talk all afternoon with you, uh, and and I I felt this way over the last what is it, eight years or so that we've been chatting from time to time. Oh, thanks, Joe. And, I feel the same way. And I will look forward to talking to you in the fall when our cancers come out again. Oh, I would and, love that. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I hope you have a great summer. And, and I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to chat because, uh, as you know, um, I have found a connection to your work over the years, um, personal or otherwise, that... Um, I have found, uh, even as I read th- this collection, um, I found something useful or something helpful. Over, you know, that, that, that uh, since reading it, that that um, I've been thinking about. So, um, I thank well, you again. Great. Thank you, Joe. It means that means that means the world to me to hear. So it's and it's always great uh, to, to to get such thoughtful questions. And so, thank you, and I'll, and I'll look forward to talking to you in the fall for sure. The website for more is at danobrien.org. This new book uh, from CB Editions is called A Story That Happens on Playwriting, Childhood, and Other Traumas. Its author, Dan O'Brien, joined me on the line from Los Angeles. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.